Disruption is not a word that humanitarians like to use. It's seen as undermining, counterproductive and sometimes even dangerous. But as you'll hear in this conversation, Marc Dubois doesn't have that problem. He comes from a long career within MSF and today works as an independent consultant and he's a senior fellow at SOAS University of London. Mark has a strong independent voice, which is highly critical of the current humanitarian business model, relentlessly pointing out when we stray away from the principles that should inform our work. Our conversation is based on two premises. Firstly, as we both have worked within the existing systems for decades, our ability and quite frankly our credibility in terms of providing new answers is limited. So we don't really try to do that. But secondly, the issue is not just getting new, fresh ideas, it's also getting rid of the bad, old ideas. And that's where we can be helpful. So we try to point out some of the main problems with the current humanitarian business model, cutting down some trees in the humanitarian forest, creating space for new ideas to grow. I hope you will enjoy the conversation and that you, in between the harsh criticism, also can hear the true passion and the commitment that drives us. So, uh, Marc Dubois, welcome to True Humanitarian. Ah, I feel very welcome already. Thank you very much. We have we have decided that the overall uh, topic for today's conversation is how do we disrupt the humanitarian sector, the humanitarian business model. Um, but before we dive into that really complex issue, I, I, it'd be great if you could um, just tell us a bit about yourself. How, how do we categorize you? How do we put you in a nice little manageable box so we know who you are? I suppose the easiest way to put me in a box is I'm a freelance consultant uh, who spent 15 years with Médecins Sans Frontières um, and always likes to dabble a little bit in academic ideas, but I don't, I don't really have any sort of methodological research approach to it. So it's more a, a, a freewheeling presentation of ideas. Um, but I, I guess I just try and get and think about what's, what's underneath the surface of things and, and, to look at that because that's what really matters and that's what really you know the the sort of the drivers and incentives and things like that and that's why i like to think about great and and how do you see your your role in the humanitarian sector what what's your function well you know it's funny the other day someone called me a thought leader and i thought oh i don't know if i want to be a thought leader in this sector right <laughs> look at where the sector's going but i i look at it as disruption to a certain extent uh you know my idea isn't necessarily to blueprint the next great humanitarian action, but our our sector, and I'm talking about the you know the formal humanitarian sector is quite powerful and has quite a powerful grip on power uh, and on the status quo and on the way it works. And I feel that for others to 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 come in and be able to make change, you need to shake up the power dynamics of the current sector, and that's what I mean by disruption. Yeah, so create some oxygen so new things can grow, in a sense. Yeah, clear, clear, I, I've said it before, clear the forest so that new trees can grow, but don't ask me to be the one to plant them. That, it's for the next generation. It's for the people that aren't a product of the sector because I'm a product of the sector. Yeah, as, I, as, as am I, and, and I think that that's a really good thing to, to get yeah. on the table before we start talking. Um, but let's start uh, right, the forest good. then. Great. So uh, the point of departure for our conversation is is a is a HPD working paper you wrote called the the new humanitarian basics. 
first that that, that title i just got to say uh, the whole point is i don't want to say what the new humanitarian basics look like what i want to say is what the old humanitarian basics look like and how bad they are uh, to a certain extent for me I, I i go back to a fairly um you know old school you might say definition or, or way of conceptualizing as humanitarian action that's a a response a human response to you know led by compassion for for others who suffer who all human beings because we are all part of that human family we, we use that principle of humanity and that that response is a response to crisis and i think of crisis as being something you know out of the ordinary something happens and people need your help the local society the local community the local government are overwhelmed and you know can't respond and take care of those needs but i look at that uh, in a very uh, sort of time-sensitive way, uh, you know, that the, once it becomes something like protracted crisis, and this is a big part of that paper, that what pro, protracted crisis itself is an oxymoron, right? It, once it becomes protracted, it's no longer really a crisis in that sense. It might have very high levels of immediate need that we would say are humanitarian needs, like high levels of mortality and malnutrition and things like that, or, or de you know, instability. But once they become structural, the tools that we're bringing in, uh, you know, the, the short-termist approach are, 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 are in, in, in opposite, inappropriate at that stage. So for me, it's much more about thinking of humanitarian action in that, in that short-term approach, recognizing that there are long-term problems, structural problems, underlying problems, and those need to be dealt with by other actors because I don't think humanitarians are the ones that should just stretch and cover all of these needs. Great, but but then we do have a problem, don't we? Because I think eighty percent of humanitarian expenditure takes place in protracted crisis. Yeah, it's it's a pretty big problem. That um, look, some of it, some of it is is yeah, you know, where does that spending come from, and where where, where exactly are you operating? You know, a, a lot of um, you know, a large percentage, like seventy five percent of the spending, and you would know the statistic better than I do, is conflict related. But often we aren't in the conflict country; we're in the neighboring countries where there's peace. But yeah, that we are in South Sudan, Central African Republic, Somalia, you know, Jordan and Lebanon. And, you know, if we're going to be in these places for a decade or two decades, what does that mean for humanitarian action? We just don't seem to ask that question seriously enough. Uh, it, it should mean that we're in the wrong place. Or for me, what it should mean is that we take a back seat. Because what I don't want is for the, the immediacy or the urgency of that need to to sort of trump or displace in perpetuity to eclipse in perpetuity the important need right the peace stability development livelihoods rule of law all of that stuff simply you you stop seeing it if you're just looking at the surface of immediate needs of mortality today of malnutrition and those things and it, it's i think we should just take a back seat and let those other actors be the ones Yeah, sort of responding and then we clean up yeah we clean up some of the immediate stuff but that's not the important stuff when you're in that kind of a situation it's the important stuff where you know in the, in the aftermath of an earthquake um so so basically what you're saying is we are an ambulance and we should not pretend to be social services um i think to a certain extent yeah i, I, I the ambulance analogy isn't always a great one either uh, but yes uh, i i think i, I you know There's something about the rescuing of an ambulance, the saviorism of, a, of an ambulance that I, do, I don't really like, because often 
you know, we are actually acting as surrogates of a state and providing what are essential state services for long periods of time. And that's not really what you think of as an ambulance service. That's more the Ministry of Health Service. The, the, second, the second problem with the ambulance thing, I think, is you know, imagine you came to an island, 5 million people and no services. Would you set up the ambulance service first? Would you set up the emergency room of a hospital before there were a hospital? And in some ways you would if you were only looking at saving some lives today or this week. But then you'd find yourself at the end of 20 years and there's still no hospital, right? And that's the problem with humanitarian action. We're, we're, not, we're not grasping that. Great. So that, that's sort of your, your first critique. That's the first part of the forest you want to clean. It's, it's the mandate creep. It's extending beyond what we are actually suited to do. Yes. And, and, and the fact that that is fulfilling a political role, right? The, 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 the major donors don't give money into those contexts because you know, they're not development contexts, they're humanitarian contexts, they're crises. And some of that's starting to change, but the fact that there's no development actors there is not an accident. And secondly, it, is, it, it, it allows the powers that be in the world, I don't want to get into defining that, but it, it allows a disengagement. You know, nothing is going on to resolve the problem but you create the, the, the facade of it, the, the humanitarian alibi as it's known. You know, that we send in the humanitarians and the public thinks, ah, we're our, our you know, we're doing something about that problem over there. And in fact, we're not doing something about the problem. I, I, I don't mean to demean the idea of band-aids. When you need a band-aid, when your child has malaria, a band-aid or treatment for that malaria is a really good thing, but not in perpetuity and not as the only mode of intervention. And that's what that's what it's become. It's become an excuse. So we do things we shouldn't do. We let ourselves be instrumentalized for political purposes. Yes. Are there other parts of the forest we need to clean? Um, I, I, I think in some ways, even uh, even a deeper part of the forest, you might say, more of the bedrock, uh, you know, gets down to some of the mentality that that that. All, uh, that is in some ways part of the, the the genetic or the DNA, the makeup of humanitarian action. And that, uh, and again, I'm going back to the formal sector, but I believe that to a certain to a great extent, our recruitment and our funding is dependent on a hierarchy, a hierarchy of where we as certain nations are developed and we, we've resolved our problems and we know how to do things and we have all this expertise and we are going to save you, the people in nations, that are led by incompetent or, or violent or malevolent leaders who don't care about you. You people are helpless. You're defined as victims, as patients, as, you know, that, that hierarchy. Uh, uh, and I think it's a very, very fundamental one. I think it has a lot to do, as I said, with the recruitment and the reason why people join to do, is to go save lives, whether they express it that way or not, but also the way in which our money that comes from a public and, and what it's based on and the justification, even where governments might very consciously, the politicians might very consciously be engaged in soft power and understand that they, you know, that they, are, they don't really care about the, what they're doing. The money is, being, is to achieve a political purpose. But the reason the public allows that is this, this idea that you know, we're wealthy and we need to help these other countries. They're too poor to help themselves and too, too incompetent, too corrupt, too violent, all of that stuff. And that that is a very fundamental building block of the way in which it's that myth uh, that is um, 
yeah, quite problematic, I think, and quite deep, deep rooted. And so why did you join the sector? <laughs> yeah, um, I was naive. I, I actually, you know, if I were to trace back my history, I, I first I, I came out of the university and I did development work. I was a Peace Corps volunteer, United States government, Peace Corps. I, I worked in rural development, chicken raising uh, out in the rural Burkina Faso. And what I saw then was this is not about technical transfer. This is about political rights. And I, I studied the politics of humanitarian action. I'm sorry, the politics of development. And then I went to law school. And that was with the idea of using rights to empower people. And development for me was horribly complicated. I wrote a paper back in 1991. It was published in 91. I wrote it in 88. And I'm literally coming around to it again. The idea back then, and it was a bit new back then. Now it will sound old. But just that, that development is a way of subjugating what we call the third world. It was a way of saying we're developed. You have to catch up to us, and we're gonna you're, we're gonna help you do that, um, and we're gonna try and make you into our model. And of course, by the time you get to where we were, we'll be 20 more years ahead, and you'll you'll be you know forever trying to catch up to us and uh, and inferior because of it. Um, and I've actually come back to that, but I left that that moral quandary of development work for what I considered to be beautifully simple. You save lives, and I really believe there's no politics around that. You're just saving a life, and that's why I got into humanitarian work. And I thought, this is simple. You know, people are suffering. I have a moral obligation to help those people who are suffering as a, as a fellow human being, and I help them. And that's why I got into it. And I am now exiting that, and I, I don't know how to exit it. You know, these are the life choices, but I, I I look at it and it I find it quite troublesome. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, and, and we're speaking now. You know, a couple of weeks after the, the the absolutely brutal murder of George Floyd, which has put racism and within the sector that 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 conversation that we always avoid around, you know, decolonization. You know, the paternalism of the sector, things like that, is now at, at the forefront again. And you know, you finish 15 years in an organization like MSF, and you start to think, you know, what was I a part of? Right? Of course, I'm proud of the work that that organization is able to do, but is it humanitarian or is it just good relief work, good band-aids? But is it really humanitarian if the principle of humanity gets trampled in the name of delivering the band-aids? Because I, I don't think that you can be as paternalist and as neocolonial as our sector is and call yourself humanitarian, given the meaning of, given the meaning of humanity, right? the principle. If people aren't being treated as human beings, uh, you might be able to do some good for them. If McDonald's came and distributed food to people, I, I'd say that might be a good thing, uh, you know, depending on what you think about the, the quality of McDonald's food. But you know, if people need that food, okay, or blankets or whatever. But that's not quite the same thing as being humanitarian, right? No, I agree with that. I, I, I started my career back in 89 in El Salvador doing, doing the war there as a We called it peace cards, accompanying displaced people. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. And I remember my boss back then uh, we, uh, having a conversation where I was sort of slightly mocking uh, his uh, planning ability. And I, I found him to be a very sort of unstructured, uh, borderline, unprofessional individual at times. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? We never pretended we knew what we, what, what we were doing, but we knew what we wanted. And that clear sense of purpose and 
focus on the political or the, the disruptive nature of humanitarian aid rather than the more technocratic um, version and that very heavy at times administrative agenda we see today, I think that has always stuck with me, that saying. We, you know, are we today in a situation where it's the other way around, where we know what we're doing, but we don't know why. We, don't, we forgot the purpose, but we know how to write smart indicators, and the log frame looks great, and the audit is clean. No, that's uh, it's an interesting comment coming from the, the the leader of ACAPS. You know, an organization that would I would argue is designed to provide information so you can do things, so you can do things the right way, so you can do things better. But of course, there's this whole thing of you know, there's a big difference between doing things the right way and doing the right things, and what that's exactly what you're, you know, what what you were talking about there, right? That when we get obsessed with doing things the right way, and the sector is obsessed with that, uh, and has completely lost track. Of, of the ethical question at the center. Are we doing the right thing? And are we doing, you know, that, that ethics trumps, you know, we, we treat them as sort of where, where they counterbalance them, right? You can, uh, you can act paternalist and decolonial, you know, neocolonial if, it's, if you're able to deliver aid, like enough benefit. And I, I just don't get that. I, I, and, and just to say, over a protracted term, right? If if the fire if this house catches on fire right now, I do not care if I am treated like a victim. I don't care if someone beats the door down, yells at me to shut up, throws me over his shoulder, grabs me, my wife, my kid, and drags us out of here, right? And I'm saying, let, save my passport, save my computer, <laughs> you know? I don't care, you know, that that that's the way, but to do that for 20 years, right? They take me to a shelter, they give me some food, they give me some blankets, I don't, that that's fine. That counterbalance is, is not to be measured in, in an hour or in a week. But if 20 years later, I'm still in that shelter and I have no, no, no choices over my life and I'm still being delivered food and delivered blankets, then there's something fundamentally wrong and my life will have been degraded because of that. And that's what I'm getting at, that, that what is the right thing to do gets displaced in perpetuity. You know, um, I've said that before. Yeah, I, I was just wondering whether you 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 sort of made reference to that's an interesting comment coming from somebody who works with ACAPS. But I mean, for yeah, me, that's exactly see, the right that debate <laughs> coming from us, right? Because our if you think about our slogan, it's uh, it's 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 see the crisis, change the outcome, right? See the crisis, change the outcome. So it's not just a technocratic bit about uh, measuring the right indicators and finding the data and and what it's also about having eyes on decision-making. It's not about controlling that decision, yeah. but it's about constructing an environment from where the right solutions can emerge. Yeah. Right? So for me, there's a very strong link. Uh, and, and I think what has, for, for, for me, what has, um, what has been a very humbling experience, I think, is having worked with ACAPS for a decade now, I have had to really go back and revisit some of my previous professional experience in terms of thinking through whether I actually knew enough about what the heck I was doing or whether I was on autopilot. And that has been uh, at, at times painful journey, but a very yeah. healthy one. Yeah, I, you know, autopilot's an interesting term uh, because one of the things I've been thinking about is less, less autopilot, but sheltered 
right? You know, acting within organ within an organization where we have uh, you know enormous differences of opinion and fights all the time, and that creates the the an atmosphere in which you think you're being challenged and in which ideas are circulating and they they battle it out. And yet, when you take a step back from it, it, it you start to see that that the diversity there were differences of opinion but there were very little in the way of diversity of opinion right and how do you start really getting voices and ideas into a sector that really challenge that sector right you know from from because for me they have to come from outside the sector within the sector even though there are lots of different ways of doing things we still you know we still have a way of viewing things overall uh, and, and some very you know, some assumptions about what's good, what's bad, how we do things. I, I, I think it's kind of that same thing of being on autopilot, but it, it's just being inside a, a sector or an organization, which is sort of like a subsection of a sector where you, you aren't being challenged, right? And, I, and, and some of the papers that I've written, you know, try and deal with that. How do you, how do you that's what disruption is, right? Where, where ideas, and it's very hard for them to come within a set, from within a sector. So, so Mark, I'd like to pick up on, on that point about being sheltered in, inside organizations. And because I've sometimes heard you make the point that we don't attract the best and the brightest in the sector. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess I would, I would usually hold up myself as, a, as an example. You know, if I were in a law firm in the United States, I trained as a lawyer. Um, if I were in a law firm in the United States, would I have risen up to being a top partner? The answer is no. Uh, in one of the preeminent, uh, you know, uh, humanitarian organizations in the world, Médecins Sans Frontières, I was able to make it to being a director. I wonder what that says about the organization. And part of it is just simply that we are, we are approaching levels of complexity that we tend not to be well placed to deal with. Uh, you know, the it, it's very interesting the way in which the sector, you know, you come up through an organization and you're almost always managing something that is bigger than anything you've ever managed before. Um, and it, it, I, I, I just find that, that we aren't able to compete with some of the more, um, you know, creative, uh, uh, you know, some of the, the, you know, the, the tech industry now, but also the banking and the law firm industry, you know, the, just that, that huge siphoning off of talent and, and I think we need to figure out how to attract that talent. Um, but it's, it's not, talent isn't sufficient if talent is operating within a silo, right? And I think what you need and, and what builds, you know, that, that capacity to really think about the, sec, you know, the problems in front of us is to have uh, people from outside, uh, you know, challenge that and, and to really have those engagements. And we just don't, we so rarely have that in, in humanitarian action. I mean, a good example is I will be invited to an organization to challenge their ideas, right? But I am, I am very much a product of the sector. And the fact that my ideas are challenging for the sector is sort of the first degree of challenge because it's just somebody thinking differently within the box of the sector, right? People in the sector look at it as out of the box thinking. But if you were out of the sector, you would very much look at it as in the box thinking. It's very much in the box thinking. And, and you know, I, and I, you know, I, I am a, um, a senior fellow over at SOAS in the Department of Development Studies as a School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. And, you know, 
the academics, the stuff I talk about now, academics talked about 20, 25 years ago, right? In terms of some of these challenges to the power dynamics and politics and things like that. And what the problem is though, they haven't translated their way of talking about them into anything that any humanitarian can understand. You know, you might, you know, in every, in every agency, there's mm. the two or three people who read those reports from academics and that's it. You know, the, the operational team is not reading those. They're reading ACAP's reports. Uh, uh, they're reading, you know, the latest things out of WFP and, uh, and OCHA and things like that. So I think it's that combination of, of you know, sort of really needing to bring in um, diverse top-level talent and then for that talent to be engaged regularly beyond the sector. And, and you know, I'm, it's not just for an intellectual exercise. It's because in the problem, in the, in the countries where we work and work for 20 years, the biggest problem is peace. The second biggest problem is development, rule of law, governance. You know, immediate needs are like the 10th biggest problem. And yet we don't engage with the other people. It's not like engaging with, you know, chemists busy with, you know, some rare, you know, alloy in, 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 in the outback of Australia. We're talking about engaging with the other people who are right there. I had a fantastic conversation with a with a uh, someone working for uh, inter, uh, International Alert. You know, a, a community uh, a conflict. You know, a group focused on community conflict in Congo. And I thought, wait a second, humanitarians and this organization have been overlapping for a decade here in Congo. And we don't talk to each other, and they really saw the conflict at community level through a different mm. lens than we did. And yet we didn't even have that level of contact. We don't talk to the Catholic church, you know, in a, in a place like, you know, where the Catholic church is a huge actor. Um, we, you know, we talk to OCHA and, you know, we talk to the sector. It's, it's, we don't even talk to the for-profit, the for-profit development and humanitarians working in a place like Pakistan with a $1.5 billion a year budget, right? And we don't know what they're doing and they don't talk to us, but it, it just, Hmm. I, I just feel like it, it is. Um, we need to get out of our box. Great. So let's let's just have a look at the at the forest. Yeah. Right. We we were cleaning a forest, and and so you're basically saying we overstretch and get into business we have no business being in. We are letting ourselves being instrumentalized by political actors rather than truly being humanitarian in what we we do. We are essentially colonial in our mindsets. So a bunch of, of Western people running around telling the rest of the world how to suck eggs. And by the way, we are the mediocre ones from the West doing that, not the best and the brightest. <laughs> and finally, <laughs> we seem to here. be stuck <laughs> in an echo chamber where we've been for, for 20, 30 years. Is, is that a fair recap? Um, I, I think it is a fair recap in some ways. I, I would say, though, you know, it's a, um, it's a stereotype. There, there are so many exceptions, and there are, you know, new people coming into the sector. It's not all, uh, you know, white male and pale these days at that, even at leadership levels. But still, by and large, it is a mm. Western-driven uh, sector in terms of its its finances, in terms of uh, a lot of its decision makers, and in terms of its under. I think most importantly, its underlying mentality. Yeah. Great. No, I, I just want to make sure that we have some space here in the forest because we're now going to move on to uh, to a discussion which is 
uh, which is around disruption, which is sure. what we said we wanted to, to talk about. We've done a, a fairly brutal diagnosis of what what some of the problems are. And what I find striking about us as, a, as an industry is that we we will happily sit and listen to this. I For me, I remember listening to... to uh, Mary B. Anderson with her fantastic work and, and her deep, deep critiques and really deep cuts. You can take uh, Alex Deval's criticism of undermining uh, yeah. political accountability. I mean, it's not like we haven't heard troubling exactly. things from, from people who, who really know what they're talking about. But we are we are unchangeable, apparently. Yeah. It, that, that's where, that's and where our, it gets interesting, isn't it? Right. I think so too, and I was really happy that you you agreed to having disruption as as the the top line uh, for this discussion because I think we sometimes shy away from from talking about disruption because it's such a destructive process. Yeah. Right. So so we are very soft in the and I think we are soft because we are afraid of losing what we have, not at a personal level. I think, but as the humanitarian sector as a as a public good as something that really makes a difference in 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 some people's life and i think that that that's why we sometimes hold back but i think what you and i have agreed today is that we're not going to hold back so let's blow okay. up some stuff that sounds good right and and so well, uh, one way i think we we see this uh this sorry mark go ahead no just i i think also at an individual level i i think there are certain there are certain things that you a certain constancy in the sector and you realize it might not be conscious decision making but you know i think a lot about the sector i think you can explain a lot about the sector is in some ways you know you would explain a lot about the banking sector by the the incentive of an individual banker to make a lot of money by doing certain things and those are the things that end up being dominant right in in our sector it's not necessarily about money it's about the currency or the reward of feeling as if you you're making a difference and that's why people join the sector and they they can they have to have that little dose it's like a drug of i made a difference today i helped save the world a little bit today that's certainly not a bad thing right but what happens when it piles up as a sector and that's where you get into these things where the entire sector agrees that it needs to be more accountable to people it needs to let them be more in control but if you do that, it, what, what's stunning about the sector is that we can all agree it's a good thing and then not get there, right? And this is what you just talked about, about how we want to change. We have lots of reform and transformational processes, but we don't change. And one of the things that's very much the glue that holds it together is I need to, I don't want to hold on to power because I want to be powerful. I want to hold on to power because I need that fix, that dose of the drug called I help make a difference today. And that's why the underlying that, that, that sort of paternalist uh, mentality is so difficult to shake. And that's why even just giving up power is so difficult to shake because it's, I need to have my say, I need to be able to do these things. So that's, that's one of the things I try and get at when I, when I think about this. I agree with that 50-50. I agree with you that one of our problems is that we think our, of ourselves as the good guys. And that's just not healthy. And and I think you're, you're right in the way you talk about um, this need, the, the fix, uh, the, the need to feel useful and how that piles up. Where I, where I don't agree with you is on the, 
that that's why we won't let go of power. Nobody lets go of power. I think the fundamental problem is that we think we should let go of power. And 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 a, a very good example of that is is this report that uh, ODI put out, which was called Time to Let Go. Nobody lets go. Nobody, yeah. nobody in the history of the world has just abdicated and said, oh, now I should be... I should be put out of business. That's not how the world works. And and when the reason I like to talk about disruption, in spite of that also, it, it is painful to talk about disruption because it means thinking about, for example, if you look at what, what just happened with Oxfam, where they had to let a huge number of yeah. people go and, and, and shut down in, in, a, in a number of countries. None of us want to see that. That's a fantastic organization doing great work. And that's that's really shitty. Yeah. That, so disruption is also, it's not a pretty process. But the reason why I think we have to force ourselves into that space is that that's the only thing, that's the only way things will change. Yeah. We will no, not let go of power. Yeah. No, Nobody does. No, I agree. And yeah. so it is about constructing a game. It's about constructing a sector where the outcome is that you, you break that power, that monopoly of power, that you break that colonial pattern that you just that you just uh, described. And so when I was reading through your report, the, the new humanitarian basic, some of the words you used was that, for example, your, your solution to or your proposal to, to getting rid of the mandate creep thing, the getting into business we shouldn't be in business with, is that the sector should be self-limiting. No, I don't think that's how the world works. I don't think we self-limit. And so I, th I don't think we should have called that report, which was a great report, Time to Let Go. I think it should be called, This Will Now Be Taken Away From You. You will now be out-competed or disrupted by a more efficient way of working. And so how do we do that, Mark? How do we, how do, we do that? I think that I, look, I, I, I think that's exactly the right question. And I'll answer it in a few ways. One... Uh, I've said this before, if you want to change the leopard spots, you don't do anything to the leopard. You change the trees, right? The leopard is well adapted to being, you know, if, if, you, if you change leopard spots to stripes and it's living in a forest with blotchy leaves, the leopard will simply starve to death because it won't have effective camouflage. So you need to change the trees. That's the point of that. You, you work on the, the external. Second, I think that most disruption will occur from outside. And it, or it will be unseen. Um, I think sometimes things surprise us. I think cash is kind of a disruptor that maybe we didn't understand the impact of it and how it might really be disruptive, you might say. But I do think that there are things that we can do from the inside um, uh, that might disrupt it. And one, going back to what you just said, because I think you're absolutely right, the power, we don't let go of power because we have a system that justifies our being in power. We believe that that is a benefit, that we are saving lives, that we are helping, that we are, it is, I don't know, that we're good. And I think some of the things that I've been trying to get at are that we aren't as good as we think we are. And that there should be challenges. We should be, there are challenges to that that should lead us into the direction of, for lack of a better term, and one I, I probably borrowed it from Hugo Slim or somebody like that, and that is, Humility, humility, right? A bit more humility. If we, if we just, if we aren't world savers, then maybe we're not. 
I think you start to lose the power that, that, binds, that binds us together to a certain extent. So that's one thing. Another is, do we have the right people? And I don't mean in terms of talent, I mean in terms of mindset. You know, I, I interviewed yeah, dozens of people. I hired dozens of people in MSF over the years. And I love that passion. I love people who came in and wanted to save the world. And I think now, wait a second, maybe that's not right. You know, I've talked to some people about this. That you, you can give people psychological tests that, that would basically show that, that personality trait, right? And maybe, the, maybe we've got, not all the people are the wrong people, but maybe just there's a balance of people we need in the sector who are not in the sector because we don't bring them in and we don't make an effort to bring them in. Secondly, when we do bring them in, because remember what our advertising looks like, right? It's about saving the world. That's, that's how we get our money and that's how we get our recruitment. But when we bring them in, do we, do we educate that out of them? If you think about, for instance, the, the onboarding process, it's usually about building up the esprit de corps and pride in the organization. And you know, here's some of our rules and ways of doing things. But you know, what about doing something different? You know, exactly right now what the sector is doing with, for instance, with diversity and inclusion, right? It's having talks about unconscious bias. Why isn't having talks about unconscious neocolonialism and unconscious paternalism? Those are, those are sessions you can run. Those are things that you can do to start making people more conscious about their, the problematic nature of humanitarian action. Rather than, I understand why for, for the donors, I don't agree with, but I understand why for the donors, you can't change the narrative. And that's a big problem for the organization, right? We are saving the world. No one's going to give us money if we start explaining just how you know, goddamn complicated it is and how full of failure it is. But internally, we need to get rid of that narrative. And we should be able to do it internally more easily than externally. And so I think that's start to look for those ways of you know, recruiting different types, bring in you know, that kind of onboarding and training and keeping it going through an organization. And, you know, being critical of people in the organization who use those stereotypes. You know, somebody who says, you know, we, we, you know, we don't have any doctors in that, in that project. And what they mean is we don't have any international doctors in that project, even though the project has 15 local doctors. What's it mean to say we don't have any doctors in that project, right? When it's, it's just completely inaccurate. We're, we're, there's, a, there's something going on there. And I think we can start to look at that language and be very serious about it. You know, I once pitched um, uh, some uh, a concept for business intelligence to to a group of humanitarians, and I was unfortunately Ben Parker from the new the new humanitarian was in the room, <laughs> and I remember finishing my great pitch, and and Ben just looked at me and he goes, so so really all you're doing is putting up window dressing in the echo chamber. I, you know what? On what I just said, you're absolutely right. But I, I, I haven't finished talking about disruption. I'm talking, that is what I think we can do internally. I, I think we can do a better job internally. Is that disruptive? It might, it might open up more space. If you bring in different people and you have people working out of a different mindset, I think, I think it's meaningful because I think in, in some ways the sector is, is a group of people. No, I agree with that, but they happen to work in institutions. And I think we have to address the issue of how those institutions are incentivized. So, so tell me, how do we change the incentives of the institutions, not how do we give uh, 
uh, a sensitivity class to a new staff member. <laughs> oh man, you really, that, that's not quite how I would characterize it, but um, I think, I, 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 you know what, I'm going to double down on that. And I'm going to say the way you change the sensitivity of an institution is by having people in it who are sensitive. Um, and you, you know, an institution doesn't exist. Uh, an institution doesn't create crime. An institution doesn't take a decision to be neo-colonial and paternalistic. People do. So you have to change the people. Um, I, I don't. I don't think that answers your question. I think. It, although I, I just. I think it's important. You get the right people. You get the right leadership in particular, and institutions do change. I think that the the other way, and it has to come. It will come from the outside, and. How that comes, I, I think, has to be almost multi-pronged, multifaceted. Meaning, you know, uh, and, and I think you and I have talked about this um, in our own Western countries here in the UK. Accountability on organizations comes through ten different channels, at least, that are external to it, not from the inside. And how do you start building those? You know, elsewhere. You know a media in an, in, in an aid recipient country, a journalist that know how to be critical and understand enough about humanitarian action, how to read spreadsheets and you know, all of that, that they, can be an, that they can act. People's groups, civil society, rather than just saying, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, humanitarians for saving us. You know, where do you get, and it's starting to build, you know, people that are a bit more critical of it, the academics in those countries, the politicians, you know, the, 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 the governments, all of it needs to be brought in because the sector can't do it from within. Um, for me, what I was trying to identify, the, you know, the other big idea I talk about rather, in addition to changing the people, I think we need to try and change the idea of humanitarian action a little bit. And COVID virus might help in that regard. You know, I, I have frequently, and you know, somewhat offensively, but the point is to be a little bit offensive to spark an idea, described humanitarian action as like, you know, kind of a crisis that happens in a place where people's skin is brown. Because when a crisis happens in our own countries in the West, we don't call it a humanitarian crisis, it's something else. And we certainly, even when it is a humanitarian crisis like Hurricane Katrina that I talk about in the paper, we only go there for six months. We don't, nobody dealing with Hurricane Katrina, for instance, in New Orleans, a city where I lived for three and a half years, no one, none of the humanitarian response there tried to social engine, you know, tried to engineer Social it tried to inflict social engineering from international staff upon New Orleans. In fact, in spite of the fact that it, you know, racism and violence and drug addiction and healthcare and education, all of that stuff of, of basically a fourth world standard, we just didn't see it as our role, right? You go in and you deal with the crisis, which was people didn't have shelter and access to certain things and blankets, and you deal with it and then you go home and leave New Orleans, you know, a terribly difficult place for a lot of people where people die unnecessarily where there's crime that's off where all of those problems happen and it is the problem for the people of new orleans and louisiana and the united states to to deal with it as opposed to feeling it is our international problem to go and deal with that you look at things like that i think there are many crises in our countries you know in certain countries in the west the level of suicide among teenagers is astronomical the way in which just just recently, we allowed a whole bunch of old people to die because we stick them in boxes and we let them rot there. And now COVID virus came and wiped them out because we don't give a damn about old people. Those are things that wouldn't happen in, you know, in rural Burkina Faso. Old people aren't shoved away to die somewhere. So 
I think we've got our share of crises here, but we, they don't get labeled humanitarian crisis. We all know what a humanitarian crisis is, and we feel that we have the right to intervene. So one of the things I thought about, let's start seeing South to North humanitarian action. Let's start seeing teams from the global South come up here and act the way that we act there. We don't talk to the people, we just come in and we do stuff. It wouldn't last an hour for one, right? But it, for me, it's about the idea that challenges that. You know, why wouldn't we have that? The, you know, um, 37,000 37, Americans shot themselves, I think last year, or no, died of opium addiction, uh, opiate addiction, and another 45,000, I think it was. These are rough numbers, but you know, uh, um, uh, killed themselves. Those are fairly horrific numbers. I mean, you know, that kind of level of doing yourself in is is far greater than the number of people who die in the, you know the war, a lot of the wars where we are. Um, it, it, it's a violent death, and yet we don't look at it and we don't think about it. Uh, but let's and the, the government isn't doing anything about that. These people are left. They are they, they are you know the 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 idea that America is rich is not the excuse, right? And so for me, let's start changing that from the outside disrupt the idea that humanitarian action is a, is a paternalistic endeavor to, to failing countries, as opposed to a, 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 a global movement to come to those people in crisis, right? And that's something different than to come help those that are too poor to help themselves. I think that brings us almost to the end of the conversation, but I, there's one thing I think we haven't spoken about that, that maybe we should have started with. And that is, in all this criticism that, that we have talked about, does that also apply to the humanitarian principles? Are they outdated? Should we throw them out? Should that be part of the forest we chop down also? Or are they actually the, the, the part I that think, we keep? A, I think the principles are, 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 are different. And what I mean by that is that I think that the, the principles are a bit more like, like a forest itself in terms of they will adapt to the environment. They will, they will change organically. They are not fixed in stone. And yet, I, I, I think their definition, I, you know, for one, to remind people, I'm a lawyer by background and I'm an American. And the United States Constitution is very short. Uh, it doesn't, it's not a list of rules. It's a list of principles. And a, a great example for me is uh, the principle, you know, the, the idea of democracy. Um, we believed in democracy in the United States uh, 240 years ago, 250 years ago, whenever. That was a great idea, democracy. And yet at that time, democracy meant, you know, a very, very different thing. Women couldn't vote. Uh, uh, nobody uh, uh, except for white landowners, right? You know, and we didn't change the meaning of democracy. We didn't change the definition of democracy. You don't need to rewrite the definition of the principles. What you need to do is allow those principles to be redefined through practice and through 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 growth. So for me, that that's that's where I would come back to the principle of humanity, for instance, right? In in you know Jean Pictet's and and the ICRC's you know uh, um, commentaries on what these principles mean, you know I think they're a bit dated. Um, one of the interesting uh, you know an interesting. Uh, 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 essay I saw in the New York Times. I'm sorry, I'm blanking out on on the name, but you know she's 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 basically she's she's a black scholar who who talks about the fact that the civil rights movement in the United States actually 
gave democracy to the United States, what they had beforehand. If you don't have, you know, people able to vote on the basis, of, you know, a, a disenfranchisement of people's vote on the basis of their skin color, you don't have democracy. And I think it's the same thing with humanity right now in the humanitarian sector. You know, we talked about that very early. We don't have a humanitarian sector until a new way of operationalizing and conceptualizing humanity comes into place that is much more rec you know, gives much more recognition to the fullness and the agency of the people right and for me that's the way the principles change you don't need to rewrite the definitions of them you don't need to add a principle of subsidiarity or solidarity or, or all of those things you need to engage in practice that changes the way in which we reflect on those principles and that that principle in particular the principle of humanity is the one that has the power i think to to be quite disruptive of the way the sector works because if you go into a, hum a humanitarian organization and say this is a great relief agency you know go go do your work a little bit better and be better at delivering relief that's not quite the same thing as saying humanitarian humanitarian has a, has a it's a, it's a sector that, that, you know, we don't talk in ethical terms often. And yet it's a sector that is deeply embedded in, in moral intuition and in, and in, in ethics, right? We, 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 you know, there's a legitimacy and a moral authority of humanitarian action if you begin to challenge that. And if you begin to say to people, it's unethical what you're doing. Not, not it's a bad idea and it's ineffective, but it's unethical because of the way in which you have operationalized humanity, the insufficiency. We're not looking for a perfection of humanity, but we are looking for a lot less insufficiency of your of your operationalization of it, because you treat people like victims. You don't give them any, no accountability to them, no agency. I I think that humanitarian action is on thin grounds there, and I think it is for for people in the sector, but the you know in communities to take back that humanity and to force it to force it upon the sector the same way. Uh, the, the democracy was changed, uh, you know, by, by force. And that, that sounds like a, a, a good way to talk about the principles. Great. Marx, thank you so much for being so humanly contrarian. Uh, I've enjoyed the conversation, if, if that was an option. For people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each who will lead. Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate. And knowing the safe, we're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor for the truth. You've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs>